who was quite fearful of what if this doesn't work out. But very, very early on, uh, my grandpa kind of told me, it's like, you know, the, if you only worry about the worst thing, then, uh, then you're wasting your time because the worst thing rarely ever happens, right? And so why spend time kind of thinking about it? Welcome to Growth Unscripted. The badass professionals. The real questions. The truth behind how top execs got to where they are and how you can follow in their footsteps. Now here's your host, Betts CEO and founder, Carolyn Betts. Welcome back to Growth Unscripted. Today we have my friend, Tim Yandel, VP of Global Sales at Sama. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Thanks for having me, Carolyn. Yeah, so uh, we go way back, uh, back to Boom Train, but we'll cover that in a little bit. Where Fill me in, like, where are you from originally? I'm from a Chicago suburb, right uh, outside of um, the city, about 25 minutes, called Wheaton, Illinois. Okay. Fun fact, it is the, uh, it's the largest churches per capita in the entire U.S., so very religious, and it's a dry town, so perfect for developing salespeople. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you grow up religious? Yeah, my family did, yes, absolutely. And tell me more about your upbringing. Well, there's a lot of fun facts with my upbringing. It depends on kind of where we want to steer here, but uh, I guess the biggest fun fact is, uh, so I'm one of five boys. My mom really wanted a daughter and uh, you know, just didn't take the signs very well on on what she was getting. So she kept on going until she kind of gave up at that some point. But um, very early on, um, all the boys were homeschooled. And so, you know, my older brother was in kindergarten and got pulled out to do homeschooled with the rest of the kids. And so that continued on through college. So there's a lot of like nuances there to unpack. Absolutely. Now, where were you in the birth order? Number two. Got it. So second oldest homeschooled. And you mentioned that went on until college. So, you know, being homeschooled, what was that journey to, you know, pick a college, decide where you were going? What did that look like? Well, it's funny because it's not an obvious path to sales for sure. I mean, folks get quite surprised on that as being a career path based on, you know, being, you know, so um, extroverted in terms of that area. But I think that actually helped develop it. So when I was very young, people say, was your first job in sales? It was when I was young and trying to get friends, right? Because friends weren't necessarily, you know, the folks that you go to class with, you'd have to earn their friendship and, you know, uh, go after it proactively. So that was in my DNA from the very start. And so when it comes to college, it was difficult. Like I had to take a year into going to community college to prove that I actually was educated and then um, applied to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, got in. But the funny thing is, is like, it was so much easier in college for me because it's like for the first time, it was someone teaching you what to study as opposed to studying the entire book from both ends of the binder. So it was actually, I mean, college was tough for a lot of different ways, but it, was, it wasn't as tough as I thought it was going to be. And it really kind of adapted my ability to uh, really, really take in and, and be coachable because there was so much things I needed to improve on when I got into college. Well, but yeah, it sounds like because you were forced to have to make friends a lot of people, you know, I know myself, I grew up in a community where you kind of just became friends with the people you went to elementary school and that continued through high school. But from a young age, it sounds like you were forced to try and make friends. So going to college, maybe, you know, what was that transition like from homeschool, community college into college? I mean, 
it was like the world opening up. <laughs> I mean, it was like, it was great. And, you know, it, it's kind of like, um, there were times where you can argue that I had too much fun uh, when I should have concentrated on the stuff that I needed to concentrate on. But I think that's everyone's college experience anyways. But I got into a number of different things. I started in, uh, I started the Alani Film and Video Club with a few other people, now still standing to this day. And uh, I ended up uh, going to work at the Daily Illini, which is a uh, the paper, the journalism major in that standpoint. So I was on a ton of stuff, being proactive on finding stories and interviewing the mayor and cold calling those folks, which was fun. So it just like, but it, it definitely had, you know, me kind of look for my own path, which I think was good, but I, I didn't necessarily gravitate to the Greek system just based on how I was brought up. It was like, I don't want to buy my friends. And that was my mentality. I'm not saying it's the right mentality. I think a lot of the Greek system is now nowadays a really, really good networking opportunity that I may have missed out on. But um, anyways, hindsight's twenty twenty. But that was my perspective going into it. It's still carving out my own path uh, and not trying to do the uh, quote unquote status quo. Yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned the you know extracurricular activities that you did. And you know, one of my it's kind of a thing I've been talking about lately with the education system and and in recruiting, how it's definitely evolved from when our careers started to today, um, but how much emphasis is placed on degrees. And, you know, I was actually talking about this with our, um, you know, head of marketing, where, you know, I went to the University of North Carolina, also a journalism major, where uh, we both think that, you know, I made more skills that are relatable or transferable to business today, actually, you know, going out and making friends and being social, joining groups and clubs and leadership than I did actually in the classroom. So I think it's a interesting topic. So now um, you started your professional career in recruiting. And so, you know, how did that happen? How did you end up, you know, going from journalism into recruiting? It was pretty obvious to me, uh, print journalism uh, majors, uh, well, this has happened post-college, just um, realization that they don't make a lot of money. <laughs> and my, uh, <laughs> and so you had to kind of like the cold reality of that kind of shifting in was, was not great. But what also was a factor was the jobs and interviews I was getting in general were like in small town America, being a part of these small papers, and then you move up to that type of uh, regimen, and then you move into a big city. Patience is not my virtue uh, on that front. So I really wanted to move into the city of Chicago. So I moved there. I did journalism on the side, and I was actually in a band, played guitar uh, and sang and bartended, and that was my life was that. And uh, when we started getting popular in the band, it was everyone needed to get day jobs. And so my day job that I found was a tech recruiting agency where they only hire entry level and they only promote from within. And so there was a lot of like really shady interviews that of course I evaluated, which was like you you ride along going to door to door, which is, I have so much respect for folks that, uh, that have followed that path. It's very difficult, but that's how I got into tech recruiting was, you know, uh, mostly because I wanted a day job, but I stuck with it because it was fun and I'm pretty good at it. That's so funny. You know, my, my first job was selling yellow pages. I mentioned this a lot, but it was definitely door to door. And uh, my second job was recruiting and uh, it was oh, better. You, just, you, <laughs> you graduated to a much easier. Yeah. That's, I oh. stuck with it. Yeah. You know, selling yellow pages when Google existed was a lot of fun. So, you know, you were wildly successful at that company, right? You know, you started entry level and moved your way up and, you know, began to lead teams. And, you know, what did that look like for you? You know, that was a, it's a very full of hard knocks type of thing. Very similar to, and we're going to date ourselves, right, Carolyn? Because it's like, 
I think when we sold, we sent resumes, we just moved from faxing <laughs> to, <laughs> to emailing email. resumes. <laughs> <laughs> and even then they were like, I don't know about this email thing. I think you should just hand the resumes physically to them. I'm like, all right, great. Walk them over. <laughs> yeah, there's just like 200 dials a day, 20 connects a day. It was very kind of old school on that approach. No computers. It was all like, you know, cards that you kind of wrote people's, uh, actually having a Rolodex of people's contact information. But it taught me a lot of the, the really, really great fundamentals of kind of going back to basics and doing what you need to do from the prospecting side. And as I indicated before, it was promotion from within. And so when I got promoted, they promoted me from Chicago to San Francisco. And at that point in time, I had never seen the city of San Francisco. Um, and so it was quite the experience, not only just moving and managing your own team, it was managing, uh, hiring a team of six entry-level folks, teaching them everything that you, you just did, and also just figuring out your life away from your comfort zone, right? And, and those are two huge elements of learning for me that honestly, I would never take back because it was such a big growth moment for me and really kind of giving me the confidence of saying, I can not only do this, I can start a team, but I also can move myself across the country. And while daunting that, how daunting that looks, it's incredibly validating when you start to experience your first uh, indicators of success. But there were some days where, you know, there were, it was, it was quite uh, fearful of what if this doesn't work out. But very, very early on, uh, my grandpa kind of told me, it's like, you know, the, if you only worry about the worst thing, then, uh, then you're wasting your time because the worst thing rarely ever happens, right? And so why spend time kind of thinking about it? So, which I think is probably a famous quote that he's ripped off, but, you know, it is what it is. Well, no, it's a really good point. And, you know, you focus on the positive, you know, you have the vision of where you want to go. And a lot of times it works out, right? I think where your focus is, is what ends up being the direction. So, we talked a lot about management style and you mentioned, you know, the old school mentality when you were at Woodbridge and how has your management style evolved since then, right? You know, the dials to, you know, now being at Sama, which, you know, we'll obviously get into, you know, what you guys are doing there, but obviously a, a much more people forward company with a lot you know, of a different value set, in my opinion, from what you were doing, you know, back early in your career. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to evolve. I think that's the main lesson, right? Is like, you cannot stay, uh, you have to have a growth mindset as a leader. if You're going to instill curiosity within the team you manage. And the fact of the matter is, is like, if you don't evolve your own playbook and realize that it's just the playbook and that that's, a, that's an ever-changing thing, then you're going to be left behind by everything that's going on in the world. And so I think that the, the, what taught me that was this playbook that was etched out from the very beginning, the basics of sales, that was really, really important to get to get the fundamentals and teach entry level folks um, to do that. But in 2008, I got promoted to a director role where I had to manage managers. And then we had that financial crisis and we did a reorg and I was managing people who were more senior than me in the company. And they were looking at me going, what are you going to teach me? Are you going to be the same playbook that we all teach our, our folks? Or are you going to evolve? And that was really, that was really eye-opening to me is to like seeking outside influences, starting to read uh, business books, you know, making sure that I'm attending, you know, webinars and, and different talks and just really kind of being embracing knowledge from the outside um, to kind of feed into the team of how do you kind of translate the stuff that's being said and make that, you know, have your own touch or, or just encourage people to go out and learn as well. So that was a really big point in time where it was like, just take what you've learned, apply your fundamentals, and then, you know, continue to learn from the outside and just expose yourself to what's out there. Yeah. Okay. I, and I think that's, you know, the growth mindset is something that, you know, I truly believe in, right? And I think it's one of those things that 
while it's, a, you know, it's a mindset, it can really be taught to, you know, embody those things and, and, you know, not just keep doing the same things over and over and over again, but really evolve, you know, as leaders, as people, as professionals. And uh, so on the theme of you know, evolution, you obviously were in recruitment for over a decade and ended up transitioning into the software world. And I think there's a lot of people in recruiting that want to get into software and a lot of people in software that want to get into recruiting. And so what did that path look like for you? Yeah, it was just more or less back to your point on an evolution and where you wanted to take your skills and really where you want to challenge yourself. So I don't want this to come off as like I dominated the recruiting world and I was looking for my next challenge. Yeah, you did. You dominated it, dude. (laughs) I owned it. I owned it. (laughs) Sounds like uh, it though. (laughs) We founded a a really good event series called Tech in Motion. And it really, um, it's still around to this day and it's growing. Uh, The company kind of embraced it as well. But it was really kind of got me more, got me closer to the startup world and the entrepreneurship out there and all the cool things that that, um, that were out there. And it's kind of like the um, the consultant mentality where it's like, I'm tired of being like an adjacent to building those companies and I wanted to be a part of building them. So I got in touch with uh, a mentor of mine to this day, still still holds that. He moved from the president of Striden Associates that runs WorkVision JobSpring, a software company in Boston. And um, you know, chatting with him about that transition. And you know, it was more or less like what I felt like the software world is everyone's running towards an event, right? And that event could be an acquisition, an IPO or anything like that. Where I felt the services side of things was running for just your money and your monetary like value in that front. So I really wanted to be a part of that kind of a team running towards a goal together and obviously ringing a bell and cashing the big, huge wins from that for sure <laughs> had something to do with it. And so he really hit on that point and recruited me hard for like a, a good six to 12 months. Got me to, com- to convince me to move from Chicago at the time to Boston to take on that challenge. And that period of two years was a flurry of acquisitions and transitions in that company that at the time was pretty tough and challenging because you had to, there was three different companies, the board of directors that I was involved with. It was kind of like an incubator in some sense, but it taught me how to sell three different solutions to three different personas and buyers and industries. It was really, truly like trial by fire. And uh, that was another experience that um, at the time didn't seem as lucrative. I would say probably the lowest in terms of my paychecks involved and moving my early family. I just had my first kid and my wife and sold a house in Chicago to buy one in Boston. I mean, there was definitely questions on whether or not we were doing the right thing. Again, you know, what might not seem obvious at the outset, if you have a long-term vision of where you want to go and just keeping that in mind, it ends up kind of working out. And... So, you know, three companies, same board of directors, three different products, and you're running sales for all of them from my recollection, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and then, you know, you end up moving to San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, that gave me the confidence to say, all right, well, I'm going to go outside of my network and just, I found the job on Angelus. I found Boomtrain on Angelus. And both of us were like, I guess in the interview process, you know, I wanted to move back to San Francisco. There was 25 feet of snow in Boston. I just had my second kid. I'm like, I don't want to live in Boston full-time or long-term. And so I wanted to go back to San Francisco and start my life there, or my, my adult life, I guess, uh, if you will. And, and uh, joined a pre-Series A company called Boomtrain, which is a ML personalization tool for marketing leaders. And yes, I used AngelList to find it. And we both were like going back and forth and I didn't think you were real. I'm like, well, I didn't think you were real. Your company name is Boom Train. Like, who names their company that? <laughs> <laughs> and so, anyways, lo and behold, we got Series A, 15 million. 
scaled it up to like 30 account executives. The whole sales org was running about 50 people until we got acquired by Zeta Global. And so now it's like one of their flagship uh, products that uh, they currently have. So it was, it was a fun two and a half years that we were there. Yeah, so you, it's like you earned your stripes in tech and you know, for whatever reason, you like made the decision, okay, we're going back to the Bay. That's where tech's awesome. And you get into this, you know, basically, you know, I don't know various definitions of rocket ship, but a, a company that, you know, raised a significant A round, right? That means that back then, you know, A's were, you know, 15 million series A was a big significant round for a company that size. And I mean, it still is today, but, you know, as we all know, you know, what was the seed <laughs> is now, you know, pre-seed and, you know, everything, just the inflation. Everything in, bubbles up. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. in, in the venture world and just in everything in general, salaries, et cetera, just keeps growing. But, um, you know, that, yeah, I, I just love that story. And that was when we first met, you know, we were helping you build your team back then. And, um, and then you went over to Hired. <laughs> and, I went over to Hired, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's when, you know, obviously you were, we worked together to help you build that team at Boom, Boom Train. But I think when we really, you know, became more friends and in the same ecosystem was when we both were in, you know, tangential companies. And I just, you know, I find the, the journey at Hired to be particularly interesting, right? Because it's, you know, basically a recruitment company that branded itself as a software company. And, um, you know, you started, like, how far along was hired when you joined the team there? Further along than, than Boomtrain, for sure. Global team. I was not the head of sales. I was reporting to a CRO at the time. So I was the regional, direct, regional VP of the West, which was about 70% of the company's revenue at that point in time. Sizable team, if not a little bit bigger than what I was used to at Boomtrain. Um, but I mean, in terms of, of level of... of Folks, I think it was like around 60 people um, in the West um, and all various different titles. But um, that was definitely a larger size in terms of uh, where they were than Boomtrain. Yeah. And how'd you get introduced to them? They found me on LinkedIn. It was old-fashioned recruiting. <laughs> <laughs> they had uh, Matt Hughes, who was the internal recruiter at that time. And I did not figure myself going back into the recruiting world. I spent so much time you know, getting out of the recruiting world. And so... You know, this was this was definitely a, a challenging kind of decision to go to go and, and try to reinvent that space for sure. But he made some compelling points and got me interested. And in, in, you know, talking to the team it was definitely the culture that uh, that drew me there and what they were trying to change. Yeah, well, and it was like a really great story, right? And the company had amazing growth, especially under your leadership. And so you mentioned you weren't the head of sales at the time. You started as the regional director. When we started working together, when you were over there, you, I'm pretty sure you were VP. You know, you were running the show, and so you know, what did that? You know, the company. What year? I'm trying to figure out even like what year it started, but like how far along was it when you got there? The company was founded in 2012. I joined in 2017, so five years in. So significant, but they had their business model in general was just transactional. So in other words, it was a, it was a you go on. No barriers are for entry for the most part. And when you hire a candidate, you get charged 15%. The hook of it was you don't have to deal with the recruiter and you get paid, you know, you get you could charge 5% less than the industry standard of like 20% or whatever it might be. I love that hook, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. What? <laughs> but and, and it's something to unpack because their their pitch was literally recruiters are bad, salespeople are bad, 
go onto the platform, hire whoever you want, we'll leave you alone, and then go from there. And then when I got on board, it was literally like, hey, that model is not for our valuation standpoint, it's not working. We need something that is a recurring business model. Uh, we need to have our customers kind of stick. I remember saying that um, we had tons of active users on the platform at the time, but 95% of the company's revenue came from 10% of the users on the platform. So a lot of people were on the platform not doing anything. So there was a lot of uh, restructuring that needed to do. So yes, changing business models and pricing strategies, one. But then going back to my first point about the, the, the sales team, when you're trying to build a sales team that exists that day and say, okay, cool, we're going to go sell as opposed to just doing growth marketing and whatnot um, that was that exists today. And then actually you know, trying to instill what that means, unpacking the culture that, that just didn't like salespeople and they were salespeople and didn't like external recruiters and they had to like be more business-minded. It, it was a huge culture shift for the organization. So we did have to kind of steer that ship into the right direction. And so during that time, we went through two CROs and I ended up um, kind of getting promoted to run uh, all of North America. Got it. And so basically, after two failed attempts to bring in outside leadership, they're like, well, Tim's doing a pretty good job. Let's see how he does. And, and you made it happen, right? And you know, I, I always find those situations to be really interesting where it's like, okay, we're at this stage and you know, we need to bring in this you know, experienced person. And you know, I've seen a lot of situations where it's wildly successful and then others where you know, the incumbent person in the organization has the opportunity to step up and evolve things in the way that they need to be done. And there's no real, you know, the, there's a playbook actually that, you know, I don't know, it, it's just, it's always interesting to see how these things play out. So, you know, when you mentioned 95% of the revenue came from 10% of the customers. So with those 90% of the customers, like when you took and in, went into that role, I'm curious what the game plan was with those. Like, was it, you know, just like, focus on the 10%, find other ones, let's convert them to happy customers. What did that look like? Yeah, so it's a good question. Because I mean, there's this uh, mantra of product-led growth, which is definitely very, very appealing for a lot of industries. And some of it say like, we have a freemium offering or, or self-serve offering on a website where we don't have to have a salesperson on there. There are certainly examples of that working for sure. Hired side was that people just needed to be engaged with. They would forget that they would have it. I think recruiting in general is such a... It should not be, but it's its a lot of the times very reactive sport, if you will, where it's like, oh crap, I need to hire this person. So they spend... Go on the platform for five hours, do some outreach, and then something else happens, right? And they forget about it. And so hired traditionally was catering towards the self-serve motion of the hiring managers themselves. But recruiters didn't necessarily go on the platform. So the first thing was, is like, we have to figure out idea, our, our persona that we want to target for subscription-based pricing. And our persona was not the hiring management. This is uh, completely alternative to a lot of the recruiting agency strategy, where at least I was involved, where you would bypass recruiting and you would go directly to the core, the decision maker, who's the hiring manager, and then just kind of hound that person. But the reality is, is like not a lot of hiring managers have this as 100% of their focus or even 50% of their focus. And so it's tough to track those folks down. Unless they're desperate. 
right? Like, <laughs> if they're Unless they're really like hair de- on fire problem. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh my God, someone just quit or I'm behind on my plan. And that's for sales. I'm not as familiar with engineering, but the same thing probably to behind on development. We need people to make this happen. So that's really the only, if the pain's strong enough, a hiring manager cares and it becomes their top priority. But the majority of the time, it really is the, you know, internal people teams, recruitment teams role to build pipeline, right? For candidates to be hired for the organization. Right, exactly. And so changing the narrative on making sure that we got closer to the recruiter, doubling down on our DNI initiatives that we were kind of exposing analytics based on um, a number of different initiatives like the wage gap and whatnot, that really helped kind of open up the buyers, our persona's mind to say it's not just a recruiting platform. I mean, keep in mind, Hired started out as, what was the first name of the company? It was... Um, oh, Dev. Dev Auction. De- <laughs> DeveloperAuction.com. Dev Auction. Yes. That's so where weird. they would put the person on an auction and people would bid to like, you know, the highest salary wins basically. And that was like the foundation of it. So honestly, a lot of recruiters did not like that. Totally. <laughs> and companies reasons. were... Yeah. But candidates did, right? Hey, put yourself on here and you see what you're worth in the market. It's very much a gamification way of approaching the market. And especially when supply and demand are off, right? I mean, in in Silicon Valley, where this company was started, you know, there's always more people hiring developers than there is available talent. So, you know, it was really kind of trying to solve that problem. But, you know, who's going to pay is the company. And if you have a company that pisses off the client just by the ethos of the organization, it's likely not going to be successful. Right. Yeah. And so there was a lot of uh, repainting the image, if you will, to ensure we're getting closer to the recruiter. So, but that was, you know, that was it was a fun transition. And again, it taught me so much in, in terms of getting closer to your ideal customer profile and making sure you're starting to tailor that content. But honestly, making sure that persona, I mean, we had make recruiters heroes as a, uh, the internal mantra uh, that we never got out externally, but um, it was really the point of like, how do we make the recruiter look good? You know, how do we make sure that they feel empowered to say like, I went from, you know, 10 open racks to zero in like 30 days. It doesn't matter what tool they used, right? It just right. matters like that. Like get them celebrated on that and get them focused on the candidate experience primarily and celebrate the art of doing the craft of recruiting. And so that, that was really kind of the unpacking that vision and the message that resonates with the recruiter. Well, and right, you know, in terms of the brand, I mean, that's great because I think to your earlier point, a lot of people, recruiters, you know, not only <laughs> did, you know, external recruiters go to hiring managers, internal recruiters knew that and didn't like that, right? There was a lot of friction and there Mm -hmm. still is today. And so really having to change that, you you had to like over index on the persona and how you're going to make them feel in order to get them over the line, right? Or maybe not, I mean, I over index might be the wrong term, but, you know, really like, I love that make recruiters heroes. I think that's really genius because, Otherwise, they're just going to think you're another, you know, recruitment platform, recruitment company. There's very little differentiation in the space. So yeah, so you were able to change the persona, change the pricing model. And, and so, you know, what happened after that? Then it was just about global domination at that point in time, Carolyn. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that there was a series of times where we, we definitely um, had some... I mean, it's a fascinating business model, right? I mean, it's not a... It's a SaaS-enabled marketplace. Right. And so you have to deal with like supply and demand and go to market with new markets. So launching them, how do you launch them? 
You know, how do you go and you open up Philadelphia and target demographics there? And then there's a matter of like making sure we understand what cities in general are, are, are going to be next on the, on the horizon and make sure that balance is at the right level. So in other words, you can't have, I can't go and say, all right, I'm going to go to Chicago and bring up 50 companies and put them on the platform. And if the companies are on the platform, there's no candidates, then they're never going to come back. And so then the alternative is true in terms of the candidates and the platform too. So it's a very coordinated effort on the go-to-market on every one of these um, areas and making sure that we're hyper-focused on the balance and the healthy metrics of what's on the platform. And, and, and it can't have more than one or the other. Otherwise, it's off, right? Yeah. So, And it's always going to be not perfect. <laughs> And right, you know, and, but then focusing on both at the same time, revving up one and the other. And, you know, as you know, and, you know, I, people on the podcast might not know, you know, you've been advising bets on this very similar thing with our marketplace dynamics and rolling out just-in-time inventory, right? Where, you know, we have demand in a certain area and, you know, get it revved up based off of that. And, you know, we'll see how that goes and, you know, likely you know, be automating it, right? Because I think a lot of what happened at Hired, you know, some was automation, but a lot was just like boots on the ground. And I think in in this business, it, it has to be a combination. It'll, it would be interesting to see if we ever get to, you know, fully automated or, you know, great client and candidate experience. But I, I, I don't know, you know, time is, we will see. So, okay, so scaling up the organization and you guys, when you say global domination, I know you were kind of kidding, but really you were looking to (laughs) greatly expand outside of the markets that you were in, right? You had offices in uh, San Francisco, New York, Toronto, I believe. Is that correct? London, yep. Okay, so you were, so you did expand to Europe. Yep. So you built the company and, you know, ultimately you ended up deciding to part ways. Sometimes you got to break hearts, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so the podcast, um, which actually, you know, was your idea to do this, is also about ups and downs. And right, you know, so you were part of this huge journey evolving this company. And ultimately, you know, you made the decision to move on. And you know, so what did that look like? Yeah, I think that that was, um, you know, I have... Uh, a great relationship with the, the then CEO, Mehul, who I still you know chat, chat with on a regular basis. Uh, in fact, he's now at another search firm and uh, executive search firm and, and we're using him uh, for the services as well. Small world. Oh, that's cool. But I think it was, just, um, it was a difference in priority. And I think that like when you get to us, you should always get this this way in terms of transparency, in terms of your goals and alignment of the company that you're at. But like in general, it was a position where Hired was looking to have an event and acquisition was definitely on the horizon. We were chatting with a few different vendors uh, at that point in time, uh, vendors or, or companies that would want to acquire a uh, hired. And it was a matter of like saying, all right, are we going to continue grow or are we going to move into maintenance mode and just making sure that we don't you know, screw anything up basically. And this was pre-COVID, like a month before COVID actually happened. And then coming to a point of like what that means. So that one-on-one conversation was just, you know, my goal is to grow companies. I have a hard time just maintaining. Uh, and so I knew that I wasn't going to be challenged and really kind of the lights weren't going to be on for what I was looking for. Um, and so, you know, we just made a decision that was mutual at the time. Before we got very far in due diligence, the last thing you want to do is screw that up by, you know, making a call where, where you're moving on, potentially screwing that up. So I didn't want to do that. And so that was a good lesson for making sure that you're just upfront and honest with expectations and motivations to see if you can figure it figure it out. And sometimes you can't, right? And so that's um, part about being a professional, I think. And so when I did uh, move on, I just took 
you know, my time, did some consulting work. COVID happened. So I did a lot of consulting from, you know, the same place that I'm, I'm right now to include vets, but also some machine learning companies as well. It's really kind of figure out what I want to do next. And that was a really, really incredible time on really kind of hyper-focusing on the next move. Um, and it led me to Sama. Well, and it was great for bets to be able to work with you. Uh, it was really fun to like do that again. Yeah, well. It ended up working out really well for everybody. And, you know, you brought Jeff to our team and like a lot of your learnings from Hired and, and you know, we it's been really helpful for us in building out our platform to have your expertise to learn through, you know, the trials and tribulations that you went through at Hired, right? Because, you know, a lot of companies kind of go through the same mistakes that other ones do. Uh, but to have the advice of somebody that had seen the movie before, it, it really added a lot of value to me and to our company, our executive team. And so, you know, that was great. And, I, you know, it's, it's great because you also were able to consult and take your time and find the right thing, you know, not just with us, but with other companies. And so, you know, now you're at Sama, you know, leading global sales yet again for and you had said this to me and I just find it to be, you know, true, but funny at the same time where you're like, I never thought my career was going to end up being the person that transitions a service company into a tech <laughs> company. Um, but really yeah. that's become, you know, really your your area of expertise and what a valuable, you know, skill set to have, especially in this day and age. So, you know, I think, that, you know, obviously you'll continue to build a really successful career on something that you just kind of happenstance into by, you know, having the recruiting background, going to hired, et cetera. So Sama, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about Sama in a second, but I think that it's a pretty interesting journey when, when I myself went from services to SaaS and then I'm taking, you know, these companies from the same journey is, is kind of, when you put it that way, it's a pretty interesting story that I'm <laughs> making myself. But Sama is um, Sama's a very interesting story and it kind of appealed to me in a number of areas where what I got exposed to during my consulting time was there's a lot of machine learning companies out there, a lot of AI companies, whatever it might be. And there are companies out that are building like uh, amazing things um, for other companies. And the companies that I was involved with were like building, like democratizing AI, building models for these big companies and whatnot. But every single one of their projects would be hinged on the fact of where they get their data from. And so, in other words, like annotating that data in general in the computer vision space. So in other words, like, you know, how do you make sure that if you take a picture, see all the cruise cars out, uh, whatever, if you live in a city, um, kind of taking pictures and snapshots and videos of the streets, those videos go into a service called annotation and data labeling, where those uh, images and videos get labeled. And they, that means that that's a street, that's a car, that's an old lady, that's a stop sign. And that teaches the machines as to do what they're supposed to do. And so one thing that I saw that was evident was that unsexy part of the actual model building like uh, is probably the, one of the biggest pain points in that's holding the machine learning AI industry back. And that was really interesting to kind of uh, double click on. That's what Sama does. But Sama does it in a way that's also lifting people out of poverty. And so in 2008, the company was founded by Lila Jana, who had that mission that said that the opportunity is global, but work is global, but opportunity is not always equally distributed. And so the mission was is to give that type of work to folks that are in poverty and give them meaning in life, that purpose to drive their careers forward. So the company has lifted 55,000 families out of poverty since its inception and growing from there. And so that really kind of resonated for a number of reasons, which is A, an exciting technology company to be a part of, but also to be a part of something that's bigger and, and really create more of a, a footprint for yourself 
was uh, was incredibly motivating to be a part of. And so, you know, I think I'm I'm, I'm at a point in my career where I still want to I want to be proud of companies I've built, but I also want to be proud of the impact that they make as well. And honestly, recruiting got me turned on to that at a very early age, where you're making a difference in people's lives, whether you know it or not. And so that kind of turned on the lights from a very early age of my sales career that kind of continued to this day. Yeah, I love that. It is so true. But you know, you're putting, you're giving people opportunities. And Sama, you know, and I knew Lila, we've talked about this. She was a a friend of mine and, you know, female CEOs in San Francisco. We kind of uh, stick together a little bit. And uh, I don't know if I told you this, but I used to sponsor the gala that they used to have at Bedstead. Oh, really? Yeah. We (laughs) would invite clients. And I mean, it was so funny because I'd invite clients to the gala and, uh, you know, we kept getting invited back because our clients would like, you know, bid on all the auction prizes and everything because I would bring the CEOs of the companies that Betts was recruiting for. I didn't know that. Yeah. She was definitely well-networked. So I, I would not shocking that uh, you guys crossed paths because you're both, you know, very, very highly on the network side. So I'm, I'm curious today, like what the micro work workforce looks like. Is that still part of the model? What does that look like today? Yeah, it certainly is, but it's not necessarily going to be, you know, it's it's funny as technology starts to replace some of these duties, you still need a human in the loop to perform the duties and teach the machines. If that's not the case, then we're at the singularity. So Terminator and Judgment Day happens at that point in time. So we're still kind of largely far away from that. But our platform itself that we build makes the annotation more efficient uh, and highly complex images itself be more accurate and at scale. And so when companies come to us, some of the largest companies that you and I know. The tool that we're using right now, Zoom, has a, a computer vision type of uh, application to it where you would you know, make sure if you blur background down there, you're, you're on there. It's not like half your face is blurred off. That's all from annotation work. And some of it's easier than others. and some, some are more complex. And so the product that we're building is really going back to my story on personas. We're really aligned with the data scientists to make them become like the artist of the machine learning algorithm, right? In other words, like to ideate and create models that make sense, they need to be able to kind of have a canvas to kind of paint their ideal model and create. And so a lot of these models that we use today fail. And so for them to fail, it's all about redoing them and then putting them into the production. So we're a part of that whole ecosystem of that ideation stage. And then there's definitely a human component to that where the agents that we currently have use our platform to annotate these images and give them back to the company at that point in time. And so that's where the human in the loop kind of comes into it. And there's like a Andreessen Horowitz kind of article about the AI industry, which is, I think that's like the sweet spot of for, for where I am because it's not necessarily services and it's not necessarily SaaS. It's the combination of the two that really make it work. And we have to be honest with that business model in general. So the next you know two to five years, I feel like that's going to be a carving out where People are trying to force AI business into a SaaS model and also a services model where I think it's just healthier just to kind of carve out a new business model in general that expose really what the value is for the customers. And that's a fun journey to be a part of. Yeah, a hybrid model, right? Where it's the best of both worlds. And actually, that was kind of what I was saying earlier with like, I don't know if like, and I, I think I'm very aligned with that article of like, let's use tech to make things better. However, you know, the human aspect, I think, is, is, is also very important. So, you know, you started there less than a year ago. When did you start? Mm, I think it's approaching 10 months ago. Okay. Now. So almost a year. <laughs> yep. We love rounding up in, <laughs> in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
what do you focus on now, right? Like you talked about the two to five year vision, but you know, between now and the end of 2021, you know, what are you working on within the company? Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's it, a lot of it's traditional building the scaffolding for scaffolding for growth, right? So the first six months of this year has been about hiring the right people and building the right process, making sure that we have teams that are, that know exactly what they need to do to be successful. Um, and so it's a pure go-to-market exercise. So first and foremost, it's splitting the teams. We have a strategic sale. We also have a commercial sale. And so making sure that we teach the team how to focus on net new. And we have another team that focuses on our strategic logos to ensure it's like more akin to old school sales, like walking the halls, you know, doing account plans, making sure that we're obsessed on the current customers and keep it up with their news. And that might be a strategic AE that has like three to five accounts total. And then the other side of it is like you're mapping to the verticals that we're going after. So if you're in the transportation vertical, you have everything in that vertical, you know the use case, you know the buyer, you know exactly what their pain points are, but you don't necessarily know all the accounts because there's a lot of accounts in the autonomous vehicle area to kind of delve into. So that's like been the past six months. And the next six months plus is about really kind of building on top of the, the, the foundation and start to really set up for scale. And the other aspect of it is, is bringing as powerful as AI is, there's a whole component with like ethics that really um, are starting to like get a lot of well-deserved press out there. And I feel very proud to work for a company that's always been not taking the shortcut on business and always done the right thing. Or a lot of our competitors in general are getting caught on making you know, short-sighted decisions for not long-term gains. They end up doing the wrong thing as opposed to the right thing. And so that's a whole fascinating topic that we can get into now or later, whatever it might be. But um, it's like the next really, it's the evolution of like you're building this powerful technology, make sure it's not done with bias and done with like implications that make the world a, uh, um, not a better place, which is uh, alternative to morals. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned morals and ethics. And because you know, one thing I've always really liked about you and, and admired was about your personal brand and your leadership brand within an organization. And it's something that, you know, as you've coached our team and me and, you know, people in general, you know, about, you know, what do you want your brand to be, you know, when you show up? And so let's talk a little bit about that before we wrap up. Well, I think it's getting out of the way. I think that's leadership. It doesn't have to be sales, but I think leadership is really providing guidance, mentorship, and, and providing like you're a fullback, right? You're supposed to be providing avenues for people to run right behind you, right? And do whatever they need to do to, to kind of hit, hit their goals. And so your, your idea is clearing that path. There is, I think there's motivational kind of sales leadership. And there's also by fear, which is like, if you don't do this, here's the stick. There's, you know, obviously accountability of doing your job, but how do you teach your sales folks to think like a business leader and an entrepreneur themselves and, and feel, feel like they're fully in control of making decisions in the moment? Because that's really uh, when it's needed the most. It's like, you can't be involved in every phone call or situation or client meeting that happens. So really kind of instilling that sense of like at their core, how do you make decisions, right? And that's, um, and that's really kind of all about the art of delegation and empowerment. And so that's where I'd like to have my brand be on is the empowerment and giving people the tools to make those decisions in the moment. So one of my favorite moments in our relationship was when we were on a trial for Hired, right? And you picked up the phone and called me and I was like, Tim's calling. And I'm like, what's up? And you basically closed me on Hired. And I said to you, I was like, (laughs) 
dude, like, like, why are you calling me? Right. <laughs> and you know, don't you have a team to do this? And, you know, I'm interested to hear like the, you know, and I know why you did it, right? It was probably the end of the month or the quarter. And maybe, you know, likely you were just kind of showing them how it's done to like inspire people to do it. But, you know, I'm curious where that comes in, right? Like where you pick it up and just handle it versus, you know, empowering others, right? And like where that meets. Because I, you know, I caught myself doing that yesterday and, you know, it works. But at the same time, it might be demoralizing to the team. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's um, it's using the resources you have as a salesperson, right? And realizing that you don't have to be the person closing the deal, right? At the end of the day, like you're not, whether it's your, whether you close the deal, you hit Salesforce, close one, and you did it all by yourself, which never happens, or you use and leverage the resources you have, it doesn't matter at the end of the day, right? The, I think the main thing is, is like, if you align to the customer and what they're looking for, it kind of clears up everything. So in other words, in that situation, what we were experiencing at Hired was a lack of trust between the seller and the person we were dealing with. And that was the, the necessary thing to kind of get us over the hump. I had a relationship with you. And so I picked up the phone and called you and said, you know, do you have any questions about this? And you had plenty of questions. Um, <laughs> I always hopefully... have lots of questions, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, is like getting you comfortable to make the decision. And, if, and ultimately, that's what kind of really melted away any kind of ego as to like, yeah, I closed that deal for this person and you know, whatnot. And I certainly did not say that in the sales team. But there's times today where you're going to have to leverage your CEO's relationships with some folks and they're not in sales. But you're going to have to be able to drop your ego and say, you can't close deals. You are literally the tip of the spear. You are the quarterback of the deal. It doesn't mean that you are the person that's doing Johnny sales guy negotiating, you know, whatever it might be and closing at the end of the call. Like that is not how sales is done. The sales is really like a coordinated kind of like symphony of people that surround you as a company and you're the maestro, right? And you're going to have to figure out and place people where they need to be to make sure that the customer is, uh, gets everything they need to do to make sure that they're making the right decision. And so drop the ego and be smart about it. And don't be someone who's just pigheaded and say like they're going to close the deal by themselves. Absolutely. Right. And I, and I hope that that when I do it, right. And I'm like, oh, I know that person. And we're able to kind of move things along. Obviously, once it gets okay, yeah. And then they run the logistics from there. And I think, you know, I think that that's one thing that I really want to be as a leader as a resource and a person that people feel like they can come to where it's like, hey, I think you know this person. Like, here's what's going on. Pick up the phone and and see what's the, what the holdback is, right? And a lot of times it's able to get over the line because it's so close anyway, that one conversation, you know, but, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, it, 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 it's... It's always an interesting uh, dynamic. So as we wrap up you know, this conversation, it's been so good chatting with you and hearing the story. What advice do you have for you know, aspiring leaders, other leaders, people out there you know, in business in general? You know, what are you going to part with on this pod? Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if there's a lot, but I think that at the end of the day, like, we get locked up on decisions that end up forgetting what you, why you do what you do. And I think as anyone who is in sales, I think your job is to bring the voice of the customer to the every single conversation and decision that ends up kind of giving the guiding light as to what decision you should really make. And so whether it's in the deals itself or the personas you're going to or the business model you're changing, you got to figure out what you're doing it for in the end and who, the, who you're selling it to. And that ends up kind of making sure the answers to the questions um, that you're looking for. And the other thing that I would kind of point to is like, listen to your own, for sales leaders kind of ascending to lead, lead teams, 
make sure you instill some sort of a core belief system, whether your company already has it or they don't, so they can actually make decisions in hard times and moments that give them you know, the confidence and empowerment to be successful. And that's your job as, as a leader to kind of build that and cultivate that in your organization. Love it. Well, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Growth Unscripted is powered by Bets. From fully customizable end-to-end recruiting services to a platform featuring 15,000 vetted job-seeking professionals, Bets connects the most extraordinary go-to market talent with the most innovative companies in the world. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes with badass executives and check us out at BetsRecruiting.com for more information on how we build companies. 